Tell me, do you know why the programmer couldn't work late into the night? Because I know. It's real simple, actually. I mean, you're going to kick yourself when you hear the answer. Are you ready? It's because she didn't have a lamp. Thanks for joining us on episode 18 of Real-Time Overview for Wednesday, June 6th. I'm your host, Michael Feenan. A little birdie told me I should consider including the date in these episodes, and I am nothing if not accommodating. Before we get too far into things, obviously we need to address the elephant in the news when it comes to web development this week, and if you've been living under a laptop, that's the announcement that Microsoft will be acquiring GitHub for $7.5 billion in stock. This is an incredibly significant development for the platform, and one that reminds me very much of SmugMug's acquisition of Flickr earlier this spring. It's also second only to LinkedIn in terms of the size of the acquisition for Microsoft, paying over three times the $2 billion valuation GitHub had a few years ago. There's already been a ton written on this, and I'm not going to call out any specific articles here and now. However, if you go by the show notes at drunkenux.com, I'll have several articles linked that look at both sides of this acquisition. Obviously, developers of all kinds have had strong reactions to this announcement, but bear with me for a moment and consider why this really probably works out in GitHub's favor. Much like Flickr's acquisition, this is moving the GitHub platform to an owner that understands development and open source. Now, before anyone jumps all over me for that statement, understand that the Microsoft of today is not at all the one of years past. Depending on how you slice it, Microsoft as an organization is one of the top users of GitHub over the past three years. This move should be seen as one that positions Microsoft to be a powerful engine in the development world for years to come, for better or worse. But CEO Satya Nadella seems incredibly driven to create a company that helps developers thrive. And don't forget, GitHub wasn't exactly in a good place. They recently reported losing over $30 million a quarter on $350 million in venture capital. Without a major business model shift, one that developers likely wouldn't have enjoyed, their lifespan was incredibly finite. What do you think? Will Microsoft just monetize GitHub into extinction? Will the platform grow and thrive? Or should they have held out and hoped to find a better financial footing? Will you stick with it, or will you move to a platform like Bitbucket or GitLab? We'd love to hear your thoughts on this big piece of news and what it means for open source projects moving forward. Let us know either through Twitter or Facebook, or leave a comment in the show notes. Getting back to what we do best, though, swing by Hacker Noon and check out Andrew Walls' article on Dieter Roms's 10 Principles of Good Design. Roms is an industrial designer who helped drive the success of Braun through the middle part of the 20th century. It was his thinking and technique that solidified the consumer product company's success into the modern day. More importantly, he understood how to design for both form and function. In fact, this is his second principle, that good design makes a product useful. Wells notes as an example when Apple removed the USB port from MacBooks. This was a decision made largely for aesthetics. USB ports are still incredibly popular and highly used. 
and the choice to take them out wasn't exactly the same as removing something like a floppy drive. Another one of ROMs's principles that will weigh heavy on a lot of web designers is that good design is long-lasting. Every month or so, someone will put out an article on design trends for a given year or month. The consideration you have to make is whether or not the best designs can ever really be called a trend. Much like Don Norman's work, Rom's approach to design is something that, while not rooted in web design, has an incredible amount of insight to offer to how we think about it and approach it. There's a lot more in Andrew's article, and you shouldn't miss it. Go check it out at Hacker Noon. Look, we're all going to deal with this a lot better if we just admit that we're going to be talking a lot about GDPR compliance for the foreseeable future. That being said, we might as well see if we can make things as easy as possible. Web magazine Specky Boy has an article that includes eight resources to help designers with GDPR compliance. Their list includes a number of helpful resources, collections, and tools that should help you feel more comfortable not just solving compliance issues, but also just generally understanding it more so that it's easier to talk about. For instance, everything's easier with a checklist. So they found a GDPR-focused one that you can use. If you're a WordPress user, they've linked to a plugin that helps address a number of compliance-related tasks. How about a command line tool for scraping your site and finding other third-party tools that might be breaking your compliance? I'm a big fan of putting as much in your toolbox as you can get so that you can find the right tool for the job you need to perform. Specky Boy's article is a nice starting point for some of those tools, which can also lead down a rabbit hole that gives you a lot more to work with. You can check out the complete list at their site and let us know if you found any good GDPR resources yourself that they didn't include in their list. We'll be sure to share it with the rest of our listeners. If you've used PHP and WordPress for more than a hot minute, you've undoubtedly broken things in a way that simply drops you to the white screen of death. This can be a frustrating problem that challenges your problem-solving skills, especially if you don't know much about server logs or even have access to them. Thankfully, Spacema Studio has put together some tips that you can review the next time your WordPress site goes down and leaves you wondering how to track down the problem. Their suggestions range from the common steps of disabling plugins and themes, to how to enable debugging mode, and checking for things like failed updates. Their steps are fairly lightweight, but they will also help you resolve many of those common issues that developers run into most frequently. If your issues are more complicated and you need a bit more information, the show notes will also have a link to the WordPress codex section on how to debug it and where the log file is stored on your site. This week's roundup does feel like it's just lots of lists of things, and Karen McLaughlin's article fits that bill as well. A while back, we featured an article on design philosophy from New York design firm Expand the Room. Karen is a UX designer there and shares how working remotely has made her a healthier person. As a remote worker myself, I love this topic because working from home creates this weird balance where you feel both more sedentary yet more active. Much of the advantage centers on things that benefit from having more time, whether that's sleeping or hobbies or chores, etc., when you don't have to deal with the stress of commuting, for instance, especially in a big city, this empowers you with a little more time in your day for the things that help you out. Karen also points out that you can also eat better, since you can make your lunch right there at home. Of course, this makes perfect sense, but I would also comment that I eat out for lunch myself a lot more, as that's my chance to get away from my house for a little while and get some fresh air. 
so it can be a mixed blessing in that area, at least in my experience. Our field just naturally lends itself well to remote working though, and lots of companies and businesses are beginning to get comfortable with it and embrace it as a means to find the best designers and developers for their organization. If your remote well-being is important, I'd also recommend checking out Jason Fried and David Heinemeyer's book, Remote. They're the founders of 37 Signals, and their book looks at how you can make a remote worker model be successful. Our final stop takes us by the folks who produce the UXfolio platform. UXfolio is a tool designed to help UX designers showcase their experience. This is not a product plug, and I don't know if their tool is great or not. I just wanted to set that up to point out that this piece does plug their product at the end, but the article itself is still useful, even on its own. Their article breaks down what companies want to see in your portfolio when you are applying for a job. When you talk to anyone in the career services industry, they'll all tell you the same thing. Getting a job is about standing out. UX is like any field, and the best jobs can be highly competitive, so looking at ways to improve your chances can make the difference between whether or not you're earning a paycheck next month. UXfolio emphasizes how the value of simple design skills as a showcase for your ability has entered the realm of diminishing returns, and how in terms of UX, organizations are much more aware of the importance of understanding process, stories, and workflow. They want to see how you collect data, how that drives your insights, and what your decision-making process is. In short, businesses want to know if you're going to fit into their schemes. They wrap up by breaking down how they think a good portfolio should be structured to give you the most exposure and to showcase your skills. You can stop by the UXfolio blog for the rest of the suggestions and let us know what you think is most important for a successful UX portfolio. Thanks for listening to Real-Time Overview. I'm Michael Feenan. If you want links to any of the stories in today's episode, be sure to swing by our website at drunkenux.com. They'll all be linked in the show notes there. And as always, if you have any articles or news or posts that you would like to share with us to be considered in a future episode, use the contact form and you can shoot us a link through it. Stay tuned for a new episode of the Drunken UX podcast this coming Monday, where Chris Wigman will be joining us to talk about web security. In the meantime, find us on Facebook and Twitter at slash drunken UX and remember, always keep your personas close and your users closer. <laughs>